Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. You know, in, in the big picture, what we're trying to do here is start a movement. I'm your host, Alan Weil. While estimates vary, spending on prescription drugs in the United States exceeds $500 billion per year, making drug prices a perennial health policy topic. In this context, payers and manufacturers are in a constant battle, with manufacturers seeking to expand their market and payers attempting to use their leverage to negotiate lower prices. Patients and clinicians are often caught in the middle, seeking to obtain needed care while navigating increasingly complex pharmaceutical insurance benefit design, tiered formularies, drug coupon programs, and more. How much the United States health system spends on drug utilization management is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Scott Howell, Chief Strategy Officer, U.S. Pharmaceuticals at Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Dr. Howell and co-authors published a paper in the August 2021 issue of Health Affairs exploring the growing burden of drug utilization management and seeking to quantify its financial cost. They found combined costs shared across payers, manufacturers, physicians, and patients totaling almost $100 billion per year. We'll discuss these findings and more on today's episode. Dr. Howell, welcome to the program. Hi, Alan, and uh, thanks so much. I'm really excited to be with you today. Well, it's great to have you with us, and it's a really interesting paper. So let's just set the stage for our listeners. Drug utilization management may not be a phrase that people have heard before. What is it? What do you mean by the term? What's included in the concept of drug utilization management? This generally refers to a set of activities or conditions that are required by the patient's insurance company or pharmacy benefit manager, PBM, uh, before they'll agree to pay for a patient's prescription. Usually requires things like uh, meeting uh, the preferred formulary list of uh, covered drugs, uh, prior authorization, paperwork that your doctor may have to fill out that certifies you really need the medicine and meet the criteria. Uh, step edits where you have to try and fail perhaps some other more preferred drug before you can get the one your doctor prescribed. And then um, oftentimes uh, increased patient cost sharing uh, for these uh, medicines as well. And just, uh, you know, I think most people are familiar with formularies, but basically uh, this is a situation where the benefit manager negotiates uh, using its leverage and says, we're going to direct our patients to use this drug instead of that drug. And therefore, if you're covered by our plan, that's where you're going to start, regardless of sort of what your doctor thought was the right starting place. Is that about the right way to think about it? Well, yeah, that's the beginning of it, I would say. These uh, tactics and requirements started years ago and uh, in, in relatively limited fashion. If you go back in time, um, most of the branded drug use was in large categories, things like high blood pressure and diabetes and cholesterol. So the per patient price for the medicines could be quite low. Over time, those medicines have gone generic and the, and the research and development of the manufacturers has turned to smaller and smaller populations uh, that still have very substantial unmet needs, things like psoriatic arthritis and Crohn's disease and different types of cancers and so on. But since there are so many fewer patients, the, the price per patient has to be much higher. And so with that, the use of all these utilization management tactics has really grown over time. And now it's getting in the way 
of um, it's adding to the cost. It's adding to uh, the hassle factor. And we think it's actually getting in the way of uh, getting what we want, which is better prices and better access for patients. So in your paper, you're looking at costs on different actors imposed by policies of different actors. Why don't you just tell us who's involved and what kind of burden are they either creating or experiencing or both? Uh, it generally starts with the patient's insurance company or PBM. Uh, they set the requirements and the policies for the utilization management. The doctor then um, has to follow them. They have to follow the formulary. They have to fill out the prior authorization form, maybe provide some clinical documentation. The pharmacy, before they fill the prescription, they have to ensure all that's done and it's been reviewed and approved by the insurance company. And then they determine what the cost share for the patient's going to be. The patient, of course, has to follow all these rules. They have to pay their uh, cost share as well. And then lastly, the manufacturer obviously has an interest. Once a patient's been prescribed one of their medicines, because this stuff can be so hard to navigate, the manufacturer wants to help as well. And so they have, most of them then have set up programs where the patient can call and get some help uh, from people in a contact center to help them navigate their insurance, understand their copay. Uh, maybe get some copay assistance, or if they get denied coverage, maybe even get free goods. I could give you a hypothetical example from one of our medicines. For, uh, yeah, that would be great. Okay. So one of our medicines is Cosentix. It's an anti-inflammatory autoimmune for autoimmune conditions. It's a biologic agent. And so if you, let's say you have psoriatic arthritis, you go to see your doctor, you get diagnosed and they decide you want to, they want to you to try Cosentix. The doctor will, will generally need to check and ensure that Cosentix is actually on the preferred drug list for your formulary or not. There typically will be a prior authorization and some paperwork they'll have to fill out about your diagnosis and how they've confirmed it. It's quite common, actually, that you will have had to have tried and failed one or two or sometimes even three or more agents before you'll be allowed to try Cosentix. And then once all that stuff's done, and that can, that can take you know, days or weeks or longer, actually, you know, to get all the paperwork and the telephone tag completed, uh, you'll, you know, you'll uh, ask the pharmacy to ship you the Cosentix and then you'll learn, you know, kind of what your copay is. And you may or may not, it can be quite high. So oftentimes patients today have co-insurance. And so on a percentage basis, this actually can be a pretty high dollar figure and you may need help with that. And so uh, you can uh, apply to the company then for some copay assistance. Or even if you're if the payer completely denied the coverage, oftentimes then you can apply for a free good qualification and just get the medicine for free. So as you can see, there's a lot of steps that everyone has to follow. It's quite complicated. It often ping pongs back and forth during the steps, and um, and the telephone tag can be quite substantial. Uh, very little of this is automated today. Actually, uh, it's still being done over the phone and through fax machines and manually mostly. And, uh, and so it can be uh, quite arduous. And unfortunately, it takes a long time and lots of patients fall out along the way. So that uh, example is really helpful. Let me just uh, focus in on a couple of spots there. Uh, you mentioned that it might not be on the formulary. Why not? What, what, what would be the rationale for excluding a drug entirely from the formulary? All of these steps really are done primarily for two reasons. One is, as you mentioned earlier, for the insurance company or PBM to try to get a price concession uh, from the manufacturer. That would be the typical reason that a medicine might be excluded from the formulary. They may have a preferred relationship with a rebate. Yeah. So let's, I, I, I do want to focus here for a minute because this feels like a really important part of the story, right? So, so the PBM 
is trying to drive volume to a competitor drug and they're putting up barriers to using one so that more people go to the other. Is that how it works? Yeah. It's, this is the way that they get, uh, the main way probably, that they get price concessions from the manufacturers. Uh, by running a limited formula, let's say there are five or six agents available in a certain therapeutic class for a certain condition. The PBM may say, hey, we're going to limit our use as best we can to only two of those agents. And then they'll, they'll actually submit an RFP to the manufacturers and say, we want to get your very best price, your highest rebate um, uh, for a preferred position on our formulary. And, and so tell us what that is. And then it gets even more complicated after that. It may be that, fine, we'll add you on the formulary, but it's going to be after a step edit or it's going to be after two step edits or whatever. And how much rebate you know can we get for each of that? So the use of the formularies and the uh prior authorizations and the step edits have an important part in that. They also have an important part, actually, though, once even once the drug's on formulary, in limiting the use to uh, patients that only meet the criteria, really need the medication, and that sort of thing as well. And again, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, I want to focus on rebates and on step edits. So rebates are the discount against the list price. So it's basically... When we say we're negotiating over rebates, we're, we're negotiating over the price. That's, That's just right. the form in which it comes. And then the step edits is the requirement uh, to use a presumably lower cost or preferred uh, alternative before you use this, which again is a way to sort of drive traffic in one direction so that you've got the volume you can negotiate a better price. Is that fair? Well, it's, um, it's, it's partly right. Uh, okay. sometimes, sometimes it is a lower net cost medicine, I'll say, but not always. Uh, sometimes it's a medicine that has been on the market a while, is in a leadership position. It has a lot of volume use, which may be difficult for the, you know, to try to change that for all the patients and all the doctors. And so in that case, even the, the rebate and the net price may not be as low as a new competitor. But because it's got all this volume, the value of the rebates is very high to the PBM and the insurance company, and they don't want to go through the hassle and the disruption, frankly, uh, for again, for the patients and doctors of trying to make that switch. And so, so yes, it is a way to try to get at lower net prices, but it's imperfect, uh, even so. Okay, so I know I've walked you through a lot of preliminaries, but I think, uh, as you say, it's a complex scenario, and the example you gave does show the role that so many different parties play. Let's start looking at the findings and we'll take them apart. But you looked at these four uh, categories of actors and tabulated up based on the evidence you could find, which doesn't cover everything, uh, what it costs. So just give us a sense of the findings and then we'll dive into them. Well, let me start with... Uh our interest in this, Jamie and I and others. Um, and Jamie is Jamie Robinson, your co-author. That's right. Thank you, yep. Al. Uh, you know, I have worked in this space a long time, studied it a long time, and have seen it evolve and understand some of the challenges and issues uh, with the way it has evolved over time. And, and we believe there's a better, simpler way to do this. We can reset the approach, get rid of some of all this onerous administrative steps and cost sharing and all those sort of things, save the money associated with that and so on. As we started talking about those things and writing about them a few years ago, we often got asked, 
well, how much expense is that? How much, you know, how much does all this cost and add up to? And, and so we tried to look into it and couldn't find any good sources on it. And eventually we decided to try to study it ourselves. Um, now, to your point, though, it's not an easy subject to study. It, there's not a lot of published data on all of this stuff, uh, but we did the best we could. We, uh, we started with a literature search for both academic information, but also uh, professional reports from the companies and think tanks and consulting firms, analysts, things like that. We, we compiled the, the universe of the data, I'll say, narrowed it down to what we thought was good quality. We only tried to estimate the things that had data, If to your point. If it didn't have data, we just didn't count it. So this is, in many respects, this is a, a, a conservative estimate of the amount of money being spent. Uh, if there were actually more than one source of the data, we used the average of the sources. And then we did very simple calculations that are all laid out you know, clearly in the paper. Um, to get to the cost, we annualized the costs, and then we normalized them to 2019 that, so that we could you know, show everything in a, in a, in the same time set. And then we pressure tested it, you know, frankly, just against our own experience, other data points, things like that, just to make sure that it didn't feel like anything was uh, way off. A good example might be the calculation of the costs associated, the cost for the payers and the PBMs to implement, to administer uh, the prior authorizations, for example, we didn't, we couldn't find data on the total number of prior authorizations that were done in the U.S. every year. We found a number on a sizable subset uh, from one source, and so we used that. Now, some of those prior authorizations are done, you know, manually and over the phone and through the fax machine. Some of them now actually are able to be adjudicated electronically in a more automated fashion. So we found estimates for the costs of boats types, and we've actually found several different sources for those, and so we used average figures um, for that. And then finally, uh, we have found a source that showed the ratio of manual versus electronic. And so then we were able to just do the simple math, add it all up, and it came out to about $6 billion per year. And when you look at all the categories, all the parties involved, what number did you come up with? Yeah, so the the total number is uh, is a big number. It's uh, and it's big enough to care about. It was ninety three billion dollars per year uh, in two thousand nineteen dollars. So I'm going to stop you there and say that is uh, an eye popping number, and I want to take it apart a little bit. Uh, but we'll do that after we take a short break, and uh, then we'll run those numbers and try to make some sense of them, figure out how to get them down a little bit. Healthcare decision-making affects patients and families, yet their perspectives are not always factored into health policy discussions. Each month, Health Affairs produces personal essays from the front lines of care through our Narrative Matters series. You can now listen to the authors reading their stories on our Narrative Matters podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Howell, Chief Strategy Officer of U.S. Foreign Affairs pharmaceuticals at Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. We're talking about the cost, the financial cost, but also the hassle factor associated with drug utilization management. Before the break, uh, the number fell in our laps, 93 plus billion dollars a year. And it, it, you know, it's when you see big numbers, sometimes you just sort of can't even get your head around them. But uh, this is 
really an astonishingly large number. And I wonder if we could just, before we try to figure out why it's so high, uh, just put that in a little context so we, uh, we understand how much is at stake here. How do you think about a number that big? Well, uh, on its own, obviously, it's, it's a sizable amount of money. As I mentioned, it's enough to care about. It's a, enough to, uh, that it ought to make us wonder whether or not we could do this in a simpler fashion and save some of that. But it also, you know, in relative perspectives, it's a big number. In uh, 2019, uh, we spent $409 billion in the U.S. on branded medicines. And almost all this utilization, med- uh, utilization management is focused on the branded medicines, Alan. Even as a percentage basis, it's a large percentage of the total. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we couldn't find data on everything. So the number is almost certainly higher uh, than what we estimate here. We think it's actually a big waste it's, and it's become part of the problem. And we can do better. And frankly, you know, patients deserve our efforts to do better. So I want to get to that. Um, but before we do, you just said something really important and you also mentioned it earlier. This is only a subset of the market where these kinds of uh, uh, techniques are used. And you also mentioned that sort of in the older days, you had high volume drugs that have now become uh, generic. And so they're not subject to this. And now we are looking at higher cost drugs on a smaller base. Um, But there's still a whole lot of spending associated with uh, some of the not the generics so much, but but there there are branded drugs that are still widely used that are that are moderate cost compared to these biologics and the like. So, do you have a sense when you look at these utilization management techniques how much they're oriented really almost exclusively to the very high end, high price specialty drugs, or are they also applied to broadly used uh, branded but you know lower cost drugs? Mm-hmm. It's a scale, as you'd imagine. Um, almost all the utilization management is done for cost containment purposes, and it's almost all done on the branded medicines, uh, not the generics. It's very uncommon uh, for a generic prescription to be subject to utilization management. And the majority of specialty medicines today uh, actually have extensive utilization management. Now, within that category, as you say, it, you know, it's, it goes there's a wide range there, you know, there are medicines uh, for very rare genetic conditions that are quite expensive. Of course, they have utilization management. There are things in the middle that um, where there may be a few hundred thousand patients. Those are generally, you know, subject to utilization management as well. So that'd be multiple sclerosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. But, but frankly, even some of the medicines that can be used in more common conditions uh, still can be subject to uh, prior authorization and, fo- and formularies and, and all of these steps as well. So it's actually quite common. I think mostly from the manufacturer perspective, we expect it, you know, basically for every new medicine we launch, we plan for it. Uh, we plan for all these support programs. We, we plan for the rebate. We plan for the expense associated with this, the copay assistance, the free good shipments and all those kinds of things. So I have to ask, you know, when I, when I think about uh, utilization management, not just in the drug arena. I think about imaging, where we had a lot of evidence that there was overuse. Some of that due to financial incentives associated with ownership. Some of it just due to physician habit and practice. And so, utilization management was really a way 
that potentially was quite protective of patients to make sure that they weren't getting treatments they didn't need. Do we have any sense of clinical benefit associated with any of these practices, or is it really just paperwork? Well, uh, again, the majority of this is for cost containment, not for clinical reasons. Um, there are there are times where you know clinical uh, drug utilization management obviously makes sense. It may be a medicine that has a, a safety black box warning, for example, or an important drug-drug interaction that the physician may be unaware of uh, when they're prescribing for the patient. And so if the insurance company or PBM picks that up and reminds the physician, that's a good thing uh, for the patients, I would say. Um, uh, but that said, again, that's that's the uh, vast minority of the of the use of the utilization management today. Well, let's talk about how to make this better, because in the paper, you do talk about the system as counterproductive. And at the very outset, you describe this as sort of a, a, a quandary. You know, how do we get out of this, uh, you know, unproductive battle where both sides have tools that are useful maybe in the in the individual instance, but collectively have led us to this place that doesn't make much sense. Now, we hear a lot, uh, not just around this, but in general, we hear a lot about value-based pricing and payment models. And you refer to that in your paper as well. Um, not sure all of our listeners are even familiar with what that concept is in the context of drug pricing. So why don't you give us a little introduction to what you mean by value-based payments and and how you see that as potentially a way out of this. So as it relates to drugs, uh, and, and I'll reference value-based prices here, I'll say more specifically, but uh, the notion uh, is a system whereby the, the price of the medicine is linked to the value that it provides to, to patients, to the system, to, to society perhaps generally. Uh, there are... Uh, methodologies uh, that health economics and clinical effectiveness researchers have developed uh, over the years to try to define and categorize and then model what these value ranges can be for specific medicines. It's usually based on information taken from the clinical trials or, or otherwise uh, the real world perhaps about the, the outcomes associated with the use of the medicines. And they use that information to do the models then to publish a range of uh, what they think might be a, a value-based price, a fair price, however you want to think about it, uh, for that medicine in that population of patients. So that would get at price, but it seems to me that these techniques are, they're still going to come into play even if we price things a little differently. Presumably those are changes at the margin. So play out sort of the next step of this beyond uh, value-based pricing. Yeah. So the way the way that we would envision perhaps this might work, it might be helpful. Well, the first thing is um, it is vitally important to attack both sides of the equation, the value-based pricing, but also what we call value-based access, improved access for the patients when you get the lower value-based price. And the reason for that is we know from experience that if you only attack one side of the equation, the, the rest doesn't follow, as you said. If the manufacturer, we have experience in this, other companies do too, that if you just unilaterally go to a lower price, that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get added to all the formularies, the prior authorizations and step edits are going to go away, or even that the patient cost shares are going to come down. And so manufacturers have been very reluctant to take those steps you know, unilaterally. Likewise, on the other side, 
the PBM or insurance company worries that if they unilaterally uh, step back from the formulary or the prior authorization requirements and so on, that the manufacturers will just take advantage of that, that they'll they'll go to higher prices and try to drive more volume and utilization and those things. And so this is this is a part of why we've been stuck, for, you know, for so long. And um, and what we need to do. And, and so this whole this whole cycle, this results in a vicious cycle then of the manufacturer anticipates all this stuff. They start at a higher price. They give the rebate, get the intention utilization management. They counter with all these programs to support the patients. The PBM then doubles down with more aggressive utilization management. And it's just tactic, counter tactic, measure, countermeasure. And this is why it's this vicious cycle. It's why we call it the war of all against all. And what it's resulted in, unfortunately, over time is a system that actually incentivizes higher prices, then oftentimes pretty deep, but hidden rebates that often mostly don't go back to the patients who are using the medicines. And, uh, and then very intentionalization management that is a barrier actually to the patients that do need the medicines as well. And what we want, you know, as citizens is just the opposite. What we want is a system that encourages moderation in prices, lower prices and, and fair prices. And when we get that, then great access for patients so that everyone that really needs the medicine that we agree is at a fair price ought to be able to get it. And so that's the vision for the trade, value-based price for value-based access. Both sides done simultaneously. Both sides sort of lay down their arms and allow us to step back from this war of, of all against all. So this sounds good. Um, it sounds like uh, sort of the proverbial win-win uh, where where you, you say, I'll give you something if you give me something, and then we're all better off. Um, I'm not sure why in the current environment that would be impossible. I mean, rebates are voluntary. I mean, this, the, some of the government program rebates are not, but but the 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 commercial PBM negotiated uh, rebates are voluntary. The, the, the choice to, to apply the step uh, edits or the, the various other techniques, the, you know, those are voluntary. So I, I guess the question is, what would it take to do this? Do we have an example of a drug where people said, you know, let's try it differently and it actually worked out? We have partial examples and we have examples where one side tried it and it didn't work out and those kinds of things. But I don't think it would take much, Alan. I think, you know, really it just takes the courage to try. The challenge is, and you mentioned this earlier, we're, we are in this complex locked in game that every side has, you know, refined its position, perfected its position, its tactics over time, and is reluctant to step back for fear that the first step back will be a give up in some way. I'll be worse off because the other side won't respond the way I hope or whatever. And so then we stick to what we know and we think we're winning in the short run, but we've lost sight of the big picture in the long run and in the, in the sub-optimization uh, overall. So really, I don't think it, I don't think this is, and this is part of why I'm so optimistic actually about this and excited about it is it isn't that complex and it is something that we can choose to do. We just need some people that are willing to try to have the courage. We're out as a company and, you know, part of this effort of, you know, publishing this research, of talking to you, of talking to other peoples is to try to find some collaborators who are willing to try this with us. I think they're out there. We're, we're bumping into more and more folks that 
share our belief that we can do better and that we should try to do better for patients and uh, and want want to be part of that. There are a whole host of small you know startup PBMs that view this as like they've got everything to gain, and and so they're very interested in these sorts of things. Employer groups, patient advocacy groups, um, academics, industry experts, and so on. Uh, we just need the courage, I think, to stand together, work together, and, and try. Yeah, the lawyer in me uh, wants to make sure, and I know you all have plenty of lawyers, that uh, ant- that antitrust doesn't become a problem here. You can't really sit in a room with everyone and talk about your prices. That's not allowed. Yeah, You're really talking about practices here, and you could probably find a way to discuss uh, de-escalation without actually talking numbers, but uh, but I, I know someone uh, who who knows this field better than I do would 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 find a way in here. Well, I really appreciate your optimism. I guess as we come to a close, I I just want to ask. I mean, you're at a pharmaceutical company. Um, you're you're reaching out, I would say, with this research, and in part, you're pointing your fingers at your own in sector, but you're also certainly needing the PBMs and the insurers to to own their part of it. So I'm curious, and I realize this paper just came out, but I am curious in your broader conversations, what kind of reaction you have both on the pharmaceutical side and whether you have gotten any sort of reaction response from the, the payer side as well to see if uh, the, the field's ready for this. Well, first to your point about the lawyers, you're exactly right about that. And we, and we, and I, you know, specifically did not mention talking to other manufacturers. We're not doing that. And and this should needs to be, we believe, a, a voluntary negotiation based on these benchmarks between individual manufacturers and individual PBMs. But then, yes, to the latter point, yes, we we definitely are finding people again more more and more uh, that are interested in this approach. Uh, and again, it's why I'm so excited about it. I've got colleagues, you know, all across the industry at this point in my career, Alan. I, you know, I started off practicing medicine. I've worked at a couple of insurance companies myself. I worked at one of the big uh, distribution and pharmaceutical services firms. And now Novartis is the fourth pharmaceutical company I've been at. I, I've got colleagues across the industry in all different areas that um, likewise believe that we're not doing the best that we can do for patients in our current system. Uh, and and want to do better. They're committed to this and want to do better. But th- they feel trapped by the current system. They're not sure about how to go about it differently. And and so we we all remain sort of collectively stuck. Again, these emerging PBMs are very engaged. We are talking to existing PBMs about it as well. Some of them uh, have shown interest as well. And so I remain you know super hopeful uh, about the future. We're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep. We have more research uh, that we're working on to try to elucidate this uh, uh, further. We're going to keep publishing. We're going to keep talking to folks. I'm super happy and proud to work at a company that uh, cares about this and is trying to make a difference. And, uh, and, and you know, in, in the big picture, what we're trying to do here, Alan, uh, is start a movement. And, you know, for us, this, this is our day one. And uh, you're, you're part of it here today, and, and, I'm, and I'm thankful for it. Thank you. Well, you know, when I think about what we try to do at Health Affairs to improve health policy, a, a lot of the early work is just defining the problem. You mentioned people asked you, well, how, how expensive is this? We, we know we don't kind of like it. but And so for us to be able to be the outlet where you can publish, uh, you know, solid peer-reviewed estimates of the cost that can be used as the basis for negotiation discussion, for you to 
uh, tease out some policy options designed to uh, cut out what you called uh, counterproductive element of our system. Uh, That's where we want to be. So, Dr. Howell, I I really appreciate the analysis and work and the paper and uh, appreciate you being my guest today on A Health Policy. Terrific. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.